Good morning, everyone. Second Corinthians one uh, verses three to eleven. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us, from so great a peril of death, and we deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us, you also joining and helping us through your prayers, so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf, for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Well, this morning, as we have gather to worship and praise our Savior that we serve, I want to tell you of his great attributes from his word that he is the God of all comfort. And I want us to look at various portions of scripture this morning so that you might have hope and encouragement in these truths that are found in God's word. Well, as we look around us today and all the things that are going on, there are some people who believe and are convinced that we are at the end of days. It seems to them that God's vials of judgment are now in the process of being poured out upon this earth. We all know that we have endured two years of the pandemic and COVID-19 which is now has been followed by war between Russia and Ukraine. There's rumors of war and China possibly invading Taiwan. There are reports and rumors of possible nuclear exchange with, amazingly, a recent poll indicated that 30% of people were in support of nuclear war, which I think they have no idea of what that would actually lead to. And we also hear daily that there's talk of supply chain food shortages causing skyrocketing food prices, and anybody who's been to the grocery store can testify to that. Ultimately, this is going to lead, we're told, to worldwide famine and mass starvation. And now the the globalists, if you will, Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum, they are openly calling for what is called the Great Reset, leading to a what they referred to as the New World Order, which will be under a one-world government. And that is to include the adoption of what's known as now the central bank digital currency, 
And that's all following the potential hyperinflation that we're looking at and the complete collapse of the U.S. dollar as a world reserve currency as we move away from the petrodollar. And this is as we move towards a cashless society in which one of the U.S. economic advisors just stated this week that that way they will be able to track every single transaction that we do and there will be no cash left. Well, the new central bank digital currency will be used according to their plans to control every single aspect of our individual life in order to buy and sell in what they claim to be the aftermath of the planned mass depopulation of the world to a sustainable 500 million people in order to save the planet through the proposed Green New Deal that you hear about quite frequently. Well, these ideas and warnings just a, a few short years ago were labeled and considered conspiracy theories held by only the extreme religious white, uh, right-wing elements of our society. And now, literally, we, we see these policies in the process of attempting to be implemented in real time. And time will only tell if they are successful in their endeavors, which this has been going on for quite some time. And all of what I've just said can easily be verified in any news source today or various social media platforms. And it's certainly not a, a pretty picture or a hopeful future for us or for our children or for our grandchildren. And truth matters, as we've seen that through our study in the book of Jude. And a modern proverb today tells us that truth is the first casualty in war. And propaganda from all different sides, which we see regarding the Ukrainian-Russian the disinformation that's put out there, the gaslighting that takes place, the psychological warfare of generational fourth and fifth warfare, it makes it very difficult, if not impossible, to know and understand what's really going on in some of these world events. But more important than knowing and understanding the truth and the motives and what the end's going to be of these world events is knowing and understanding the truth about the God who is controlling these world events. And it is essential for us this morning that what we believe and know and understand about our God and our Savior, that it's true and it's accurate, that we would have hope and comfort in the midst of uncertain times. And really what we believe and understand about God affects how we live on an everyday basis. Theology, the study of God, literally, is always very practical, and it's always relevant because it affects every aspect of your daily life. And you think about fear, you think about worry, anxiety, despair, discouragement, depression. Those are, can all be the result of faulty or false under, misunderstandings and false and incorrect theology. But a proper understanding of God and His grace are what strengthens and encourages each of us in the midst of the often extremely difficult circumstances of this present life that we all experience. And each one of us here this morning, we must come to more fully know our, our God and how He's revealed Himself in the Bible. You know, Martin Luther 
once remarked to Erasmus, and he said, your thoughts of God are far too human. And I think that most of us could agree at times that our thoughts of God are also too human. God states in his word that you thought of me as you think of yourself. And he says, my ways are much higher than your ways. You can't comprehend or understand the Almighty. And A.W. Pink said, the God of modern religious thought no more resembles the supreme sovereign of the Bible than does the dim flickering of a candle resemble the glory of the noonday sun. Well, let me begin with a question. How do we please God? We might have different ideas of what's pleasing to God. Well, I take you to the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11. And again, I don't always quote the verse. I would encourage you to start reading where I would quote like Hebrews 11. Read the entire chapter to pick up the context. What's said before the verse and what's said after that you get that complete idea of what God is trying to communicate so we just don't take a verse out of context. But he says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Hebrews 11, verse 6. And the God who created us wants us to know and trust him. And the idea is that without faith, it's impossible to please him in any way. It's not merely a belief in the existence of a God that is meant here, but in the existence of the one and true and living God who has revealed himself to us in his scripture and in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We know also from Hebrews in these last days he has spoken to us completely through his son, Jesus Christ. Well, in order to live by faith... We must believe and understand that God is who he promises and claims to be in his word. So you think about if we're going to please God and have to live by faith, well, what what is faith? How can we define faith that we can understand it? And biblically defined, I can say faith is understanding and assent to a proposition. We deal... In biblical Christianity and propositional truth where something is stated, I understand it, I believe it. Now notice what the scripture says about Abraham. Again, Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 4. He said, yet with respect to the promise of God, Abraham did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Well, that's verse 21 there of Romans chapter 4. And biblical faith is to believe the promises of God. It is the understanding and assent to a proposition that's stated, to believe it. Well, Abraham believed what God had spoken to him. That is faith. And remember what he's telling. I'm during the Abrahamic covenant that God instituted with Abraham. And again, that was one of the unilateral type governments that God established by the power of God. And there he said, I'm going to make you a great nation, you know, many offspring. Well, he looks at himself and you recall, how old was he? 
A hundred. And how old was his wife? Sarah. She was 90. You know, humanly speaking, that's impossible. But nothing's impossible, the Scripture says, where God's involved in it. And God said, I'm going to do this. And if we heard that today, we would, we would probably have doubt. But Abraham was strong in his belief and his faith in that regard. Well, he understood that the thinking and understanding of that proposition, that what God said and put forth, that promise of God, because remember, every day when we wake up, it's a constant battle whether you're going to live by faith following the promises of God or believe and live the lives of the world and lead your life according to your own understanding, your own wisdom, and your own judgment, rather than relying on God and God's grace to guide us through the power of His holy indwelling Spirit. Well, faith must begin with knowledge. And belief is the act of assenting to something understood. You know, I hear it and I understand it. God's given me a mind. I can think rationally. But understanding alone is not belief in what is understood. Now, let me explain that to you and say it. Understanding something alone is not the same as belief in what is understood. For example, I understand the theory of evolution, but I do not believe that. I believe God created everything. I believe according to the Word of God, He literally created everything in six 24-hour days. Well, think of this. Here's another, probably the prime example of propositional truth presented in the Word of God. John 3.16. Everyone knows that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's a promise from God. And when we believe in Christ and what he's done, I'm giving, given and inherit eternal life. Everlasting life. When I come to the living God as a repentant, guilty sinner, trusting in Jesus Christ and His righteousness, His perfected, finished work, and in Him alone to do for me what I could never do on my own or for myself, I'm acting in faith. And what did we just hear? That faith is what pleases God. Keep that in mind throughout the message this morning. Faith is what pleases God. I've never seen God. I've never seen the risen Lord Jesus. But by faith, those things which I cannot see, again, this is part of the definition of biblical faith, the things I cannot see become realities and take on a real everyday substance in my life. And by faith, I gain assurance and conviction about the things that my eyes cannot behold. And all genuine believers have trusted and exercised faith in Christ for their salvation. You can't be a Christian without doing that. And although every genuine believer has done that, there are many that are not consistently living by faith. That is, trusting God in each and every area of their daily life. And I ask you, you know, when you're suffering and times are difficult and your life appears to be falling apart and things are crumbling around you, 
Do you trust God? And when we fail to trust God, we ultimately we're doubting His sovereignty and really we're deep down we're questioning whether or not He's really good. That's the heart of the matter of what's going on. And in order to trust God, we must always view all of our circumstances through the eyes of faith. Because why? Faith pleases God. You know, a correct knowledge and understanding of God is essential in the matter of trusting somebody. And we've got the written Word of God. The Bible is the direct special revelation of God Himself to the world, which He created. We know that according to the Word of God in Romans chapter 1, that everyone knows there is a God. There are no atheists. Everyone knows that there is a God because of their conscience tells them there is a God and creation tells them there is a God. But that's not enough. We need divine special revelation to reveal how we are to please God and for salvation in order to be reconciled to God through the only person that can do that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity. We wouldn't know that by looking at creation. You know, we can go outside and look around us. We can look at one another. And we know any rational thinking being knows that there is some creator or design behind things that are very complex. Nobody can look at this watch and say it put itself together. It's irrational. But that's what the theory of evolution and other types of theories hold. It's all a war against God. It's a lie of the devil in order to remove the responsibility and accountability of man before their creator. Well, we have the word of God in which God has revealed himself ultimately in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Well, when we come to know God, truly know God, not know about him, but knowing him in a personal relationship, that's how we come to learn to trust in him. That growing faith, that steadfastness, that hope that won't dissolve in the midst of difficult circumstances. We're built on that solid foundation so when the storms come, it's not on the sand that's easily destroyed. You know, it's really hard to, uh, to trust someone that you don't know very well. And... What I propose this morning, some propositional truth, is that the most important thing that we've got to know and understand about God, our God is sovereign. <laughs> and I'm going to explain that. And you should leave here with a renewed hope and strengthened faith. And the Bible teaches, the Word of God teaches that God is sovereign over everything. And to say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the Almighty. It is to declare that he is the possessor of all power, all authority in heaven and on earth so that none can defeat his counsel, none can thwart his purpose, none can resist his will. The psalmist writes in Psalm 115, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. God does whatever he pleases according to his character. 
and his attributes. He controls everything in his creation. The Bible clearly teaches that God is sovereign. It's, you can't argue this. First Chronicles chapter 29. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, thine is the dominion. O Lord, and thou dost exalt thyself as head over all. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. You know, God did not simply create the world in which we live and then walk away from it as some think again this is false teaching it's faulty understanding it's not how God has revealed himself in his word God constantly sustains and direct that which he created Colossians tells us he's holding all things together you know 17th century deism which is false teaching Constructed a false god, an idol, if you will, who created a universe and then left it to run according to its own natural law. Some of the founders of this country were deists in that regard. They believed in a creator, but they did not believe in his every moment providential rule over every aspect of his creation. But interestingly of this, in many respects, some Christians are practical deists in their daily living. That is, they think and they act as if God is not active in his creation and in their daily lives. God just leaves it up to me. That's just something I just do. And all of us have probably thought that at some point. We don't always pray as we should about certain things. We've adopted that mentality sometimes. You know, hey, I've got this. I can handle it. I can figure it out. I'm smart enough. I'm strong enough. I've got enough ingenuity. I have enough financial resources. And we don't see that we need to trust and rely God in every aspect. And that robs God of his glory, of his people. He's a loving father that wants to provide for his children. You know, prayer is recognized dependence upon him, that we're not independent. We are dependent on him to meet our needs. Well, think of the prophet Isaiah. Chapter 46. Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there, there is no one like me. And verse 10 of that portion of that scrap. Declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times things that have not been done. Saying, this is God the Almighty speaking. In his word to us today, my purpose will be established. And I will, I will, not I hope to, I think I can. And I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Now that is comforting to the believer. 
When God said, those that believe in my son, I give unto them eternal life. And when Jesus said in John chapter 6, all that come unto me, I will cast none away. I will lose none of them. I will raise them up at the last day. No one can take them out of my hand or my father's hand. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. These are all things that encourage our hearts and strengthen our faith when we're going through difficult times. And the Almighty says, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey, a bird, he's got, remember the sparrow cannot fall to the ground apart from God's divine will. He knows every hair on our heads, it said. It's appointed what day and how and all the circumstances surrounding our physical death. That's all in God's hands. He can call a bird of prey from the east. He can call a man of my purpose from a far country. And he says, truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. And the sovereignty of God is absolute. It's irresistible. And it's infinite. God does as he pleases, how he pleases, when he pleases, and whatever takes place in time is but the outworking of that which he decreed in eternity past. The world is not spinning out of control as it appears to us on the surface. You know, some people are perfectly okay and prepared to allow God's sovereignty over nature and other limited aspects of his creation. But, you know, just somehow the... The thought of complete divine sovereignty, including over individual people, you know, that's just a little bit too difficult to grasp. What about my free will? <laughs> Yet the Bible repeatedly teaches God's sovereignty over everything, including people. Again, this is not something to be angered at. You better be thankful God's sovereign over your life. <laughs> If he left you to your own devices, there's none that seek after me. There's none good. They will not come unto me because they cannot come unto me because of their depravity and their sinful nature. The Bible repeatedly teaches God's sovereignty over everything, including people. It speaks of God making the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the Israelites. Remember that in Exodus chapter 12. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptian articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. You know, Moses tells them, go out and tell them, hey, we want your silver and gold and your clothing. Give it to us. And the Lord, it says, had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. The Lord did it, not, not them. They didn't intimidate them. They just went forth in obedience of what Moses told them, who's getting the instructions from God. Hey, give us the gold and silver and the clothing. God gave his people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have their request. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. The word of God records for us. The Bible tells us that God, that he moved the heart of King Cyrus of Persia. Well, Persia is modern-day Iran, and we see what's going on with Iran, nuclear arms deals and that talk again. They keep threatening to blow up Israel or blow up the world. But God in history moved the king of Iran or Persia in order to fulfill his word. Ezra 
chapter 1, verse 1. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, and remember, this is a pagan, <laughs> in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, to fulfill God's word, by the mouth of Jeremiah the prophet, the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he also put it in writing. If God can move the heart of King Cyrus for legislation and put stuff in writing, he can move the hearts of our legislators, our executive branches. God can do all this. It's not beyond his power. You know, one of the strongest biblical propositions that would encourage our hearts. Proverbs 21. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Regardless of whoever the Lord's placed in positions of political power, they're not outside the authority and control of our Lord. <laughs> he is Lord of Lords. He has authority over every earthly ruler. Now, remember, when this was written, you know, Solomon... <laughs> It's difficult for us today to fully appreciate a statement like that. But in Solomon's time, the king was an absolute monarch, divine right of kings. Whatever they said went. There were no checks and balances. There were no division of government, no accountability to the people. There was no legislator to pass laws or to rein in his power. There's no Supreme Court to pass judgments of whether or not a law was constitutional. The king's word was the last word. And his authority over the kingdom was unconditional and unrestrained from a human perspective. Yet this verse from Proverbs teaches that God controls the heart of the most powerful monarch on the earth. Just as a farmer directs the flow of water through his irrigation canals. That's what our God does. Think of Psalm 2. The nations rage and they gather. What does he do? What's his response? He scoffs. He laughs. He's going to break them with a rod of iron. They, because why? He's established his king on Zion. If you go in and read that entire psalm. He's ruling all. He's just going to laugh at whatever military power or people take confidence is. And the scripture clearly says don't put your confidence in the might of horses and bows and arrows and shields and spears. And Our confidence is in God in his promises. You know, when all of us go through life and we think at times that we find ourselves at the mercy of the decisions and actions of others, we fret about it, we worry about it, what's the boss going to do? You know, what's the Congress going to do? What law are they going to pass? However, God always sovereignly rules over those decisions and actions. That brings great comfort to the believer that understands that and acts upon that. God moves people to do his will. And even restrains people from accomplishing the evil that they would desire to do. Think of Genesis chapter 20, verse 6. Then God said to Abimelech, 
in the dream. Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this. And I also kept you from sinning against me. God did that. He kept him from sinning. And he says, not only that, against him, he said, therefore, I did not let you touch her. God prevented that. Just like in the New Covenant, that old heart of stone is removed and we receive that new heart of flesh. And God says, I'm going to put my spirit within you and I'm going to cause you to walk in my ways. And you've been foreordained or predestined for good works. This is the same God that can prevent sin. He's causing His people to walk in holiness and righteousness. And if you're going to trust God and live by faith, you've got to understand and believe that He's in control of every aspect of your individual life. It's miserable not to live that way. The doctrine of God's sovereignty found throughout Scripture clearly teaches that we can trust Him. Lamentations chapter 3. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? No one can act outside God's sovereign will or against it. Every believer should be extremely comforted by that truth. Whatever circumstance, whatever hardship, whatever suffering and afflictions you're going through, you can rest assured and trust and live by faith that God is in full and complete control of every situation. How comforting it is to know for each of us and believe that God who loves us eternally and gave himself for us. As you've heard me say before, every other religion wants you to sacrifice and do something for God. Christianity is completely different. God reveals, no, it's not what you do for me. It's what I've done for you (laughs) that you couldn't do for yourself. That's the new covenant promise. I'll do it for you because you can't do it. And I've loved you before the creation of the foundations of this earth. And I sent my son to die for these people, this bride that's going to be spotless and blameless and perfect. And of those that I've given to my son is that wedding gift, if you will. He's not going to lose any of them. They're in his hand and no one can pluck them out of it. And not only are we in his hand, the son's hand, but in the father's hand. Our salvation is secure in Christ. No one can thwart his purpose. No one is outside His will. No one can overpower the Almighty. These are such great comforts. God is in control of everything that occurs in time and space as we know it. And even the things that we can't comprehend. We can't even begin to understand what God has promised for those that are called and love Him. Whatever we're conceiving about the eternal state to enter into glory, we can't even begin to understand or comprehend how wonderful and glorious that's going to be. Well, we need to learn to trust God. We need to learn to live by faith. 
And part of the marks of our maturity, and we're all on that road together, this progressive sanctification, we don't fully understand the particular details of every situation. I don't understand what's going on in every aspect of the world today. I don't even know what's going on in every aspect of the church or my neighborhood. But God does. But regardless of my understanding, it's still to live by faith and trusting in God because that pleases my Savior. You know, God controls everything. I can't emphasize that enough over and over. God controls everything, including the evil acts of men. Including the evil acts of men. He controls that. And when I say things like that, and I tell people as I'm out there meeting people and talking to people in different circumstances, and there's great opportunities now with everything that's going on in the world to address that from God's perspective and bring the gospel of hope to people that are fearful and anxious and worried. Well, when I tell them that God's in control of that, even the evil acts of men, I sometimes get responses, you know, You're crazy to believe something like that. You know, God's good. God's loving. God's kind. He he would never do or allow something like that. And all I got to do to make my point is remember 9-11. I heard sermon after sermon of preachers in the pulpit saying that this caught God off guard. If he could have stopped it, he would have. He was powerless to prevent that. Our God would never do that. That's not the God of the Bible. That is a false God. That is an idol that people have constructed. We're not at liberty to make God how we want him to be or according to our understanding. His word, of the, his word reveals who he is. And we either believe that propositional truth, even if we're uncomfortable with it, because the Almighty has spoken. Who are you to reply, O oh man, against God? Does the lump of clay respond back to the potter? Do you question the Almighty? Job was questioning the Almighty at one point. You know, it's one thing to have questions, but it's another thing to be defiant and unbelief. Because unbelief does not please God. Could God, was he caught off guard on 9-11? Did he desperately want to, to do it, but he, he didn't have the power? That's false teaching. That's heresy. And it needs to be called out when people from the pulpit preach a God like that. Because they're not faithful to this word. Is that really the God of Scripture? Is that what the Scripture teaches? Notice what Job says. In Job chapter 1. Job said, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we've all heard that passage. You hear that at funerals. But do we really believe that? And think about his situation in the context of what's going on when he says that. After total financial collapse, the loss of this property... In the death of his ten children, Job says the Lord has taken away. He didn't say the devil took it away. 
He didn't say the evil men took it away. The Lord has taken away. But pay particular attention to how does Job respond because of his thinking. What does he do in light of that? Then Job arose and he tore his robes and he shaved his head and he fell to the ground and he worshipped. That would be probably the last thing you and I would feel like doing. If you're financially wiped out, you've lost all your property and ten of your, your children are gone. We would be more likely to follow the counsel of his wife and say, curse God and die. And he wouldn't do it because he knew and understand, and by faith he believed in the promises of God. He's not angry. He's not questioning God in that sense at that point. He is seen responding in worship. And we can't hardly think of a worse life circumstances than what he just went through. Job trusted God, and he knew God. And he knew that God was sovereign over all that. And God had a reason, even though he didn't understand it. And I ask you this morning, does Job's thinking and his understanding and his actions fit your current everyday theology? Do you have that theology of our Savior? You know, Job's rock of refuge and hope when everything else seemed to be crumbling around him was the absolute sovereignty of the Almighty God that he knew and he trusted. That's what got him through. And that's why the book of Job is so relevant and helpful to each of us today and this morning. And Job's account is recorded for us. The Scripture clearly teaches these things. These accounts are recorded for us that we might have hope. It would build our faith so that we will have hope and comfort in living through the most difficult times. If God's grace was sufficient for Job, it's sufficient for whatever you're going through today. In the midst of life's worst circumstances, Job was able to worship. And when you hear that word worship, what do you... What kind of thoughts come to your mind? Well, the word worship means honor paid to a superior being. It also means to give honor, respect, adoration, praise, and glory to God. You know, the Hebrew word for worship is very powerful in the word picture it presents. It it describes a physical act of actually prostrating yourself on the floor or on the ground. I mean, laying out before somebody. That's before a sovereign. That is someone who has complete control over you and you recognize it. A working definition of worship. And take this away with you this morning. A working definition of worship for us today can be aligning ourselves with God's will both written and providential. (laughs) Not my will be done, Lord, but your will be done. We're taught to pray that. Aligning ourselves with God's will, both written, His revealed word in the Scripture, if you love me, you will obey me, the law of Christ, which we're under and we're obeying, and providential. We worship providentially whatever God brings into our lives. And that's hard to do. You know, think about it. It's truly amazing that Job followed 
adversity with adoration. And not only did he do that, the woe that he was experiencing led to worship. Completely the opposite of what the world and how they would live. And unfortunately, many many followers of Christ, because they don't fully know and understand who he is and how he's revealed himself. Job could do this because he knew God. And he knew God was sovereign and he knew God was good. And Job trusted him and he worshipped him. And I pray for each of us that we would move further along that path. As we grow in faith and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, we learn to trust him in the worst of circumstances. You know, the longer you live, usually you can look back and see God's providential hand when you thought it was complete chaos and didn't know what good was costly going to come out of it. We learn to understand that all occasions of suffering and sorrow are under his complete and absolute control. True biblical faith has confidence and understanding that our current suffering or affliction is under the control of an all-powerful, all-loving God. Each of our sufferings, each of our disappointments has meaning and purpose in God's eternal plan. And we know him enough that he only brings things into our lives that are for his glory and our ultimate good. These are things I can stand up here and talk about all day long, but these are things you've got to have in your heart to understand this in the middle of a trial. This is why you meditate on the scripture. This is why you spend time in God's word and praying that you would know him and trust him and your faith would be strengthened. You know, it doesn't do any good to get in physical shape to sit there and look at all the weights stacked up in the corner if you don't go over and pick them up. <laughs> it's the same with the means of grace. It doesn't happen by just laying there on the couch and on osmosis because the Bible is there on the coffee table. you got to pick it up and read it. Meditate. Pray through it. Memorize it. All these things are helpful with God's means of grace. Well, again, Job knew and trusted God and it allowed him to worship in the worst of circumstances. And the way that you and I respond to problems and weaknesses and temptations and trials and difficulties, it really gets down to our understanding and reflection of God and who we understand and think he is. And if you truly know God, you know that he's omnipresent. That's everywhere. And Jesus said, I'll never leave or forsake you. I'm with you to the ends of the age. He's omniscient. He knows all. Nothing can be hidden from him. He's all-powerful. And again, he's, he's eternally set his love on his people. And knowing that and understanding that, why would we ever be fearful and worry? Why would we ever lose sleep? Why would we have doubt? He's sovereign. And he's working everything out for the good, his good, or our good and his glory. Everything that happens is for his eternal purpose. No single atom is outside his control. (laughs) 
We all know Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And again, it, it doesn't say that everything that happens is good, but he takes even the evil acts of men and turns it good. And believer, no matter what happens to you, God means, means it for good. Think of Joseph. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. He went through some difficult circumstances. Go back and read his account in Genesis. But God means it for good. Learn to trust him. Well, you say, okay, give me, a, give me an example of God working something good out of evil. I'll give you the best example there ever is. The, bless, the best place to see God's absolute and complete sovereignty is demonstrated in the cross of his son as we turn our attention to the Lord's table. The scriptures tell us that God not only permitted it to take place, not only managed to bring about good out of this evil, but that the crucifixion itself, as unjust and as evil as it was, happened according to God's perfect eternal plan and purpose. There's no arguing with that from the word of God. Think of Peter and his sermon to the crowd on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Jesus being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. God the Father planned all this in eternity past before he ever created. And he, and he says, though, God planned this. He foreordained it. But you have taken by lawless hands, evil hands, sinful hands. You have crucified and put to death. And later in Acts... Chapter 4, you've got Peter and John, you've got them praying, and they're saying, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do, listen to this, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. That's God's perfect plan for the redemption of sinful people, to reconcile himself through the death and crucifixion of his own son who was without sin. And just in case there's any doubt left in your mind about all this, and you're uncomfortable with it perhaps, that God ordained this, (laughs) caused it to happen, listen to the prophet Isaiah. Before, long before Jesus' incarnation, Isaiah 53. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased God the Father to strike his son, who was bearing our sin, who had no sin. This is the love of God. While we were yet sinners, Christ was crucified for us. It all makes perfect sense. It's all in line with God's revealed will. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him, the Father, put the Son to shame for, put him to grief so that we wouldn't be. He says, when you make his soul an offering for sin, the perfect sacrifice, once done, completed, it is finished, sat down at the right hand of the Father, He shall see his seed. That's you. That's me. That's believers in Christ. He shall see them. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. For his eternal 
kingdom, which is coming. It already exists. It's just a matter of the consummation. We're looking forward to that marriage feast with the bridegroom. And you ask yourself, was the death of Christ and the crucifixion, was that an evil and unjust act? Well, certainly. I would contend it's the most evil and unjust act ever committed. We talk about justice. Brandon was praying about that. You talking about something unjust, a perfect sinless man being crucified as a common criminal, God putting him to grief and bearing our sin, and then giving his son's perfect righteousness of keeping that law which we could not do. He gave it to us that we are holy and blameless in his sight, that we are united to Christ by faith. There is no condemnation for those that are now in Christ, that we are not condemned. The day of his appearing will be great joy for his people. And you asked, did the crucifixion cause pain and suffering? Yes, there was great pain and suffering. And yet the Bible tells us that it all happened according to the perfect will of God. According to God's plan and purpose for his ultimate glory and the good of his redeemed people. And that's why we assemble this morning. That's why we partake of the Lord's table every week to remind us of what God has done. And just as he promised that we have eternal life, Jesus promised that he's coming again. And we're told to observe the table until he returns. And we do that in faith and obedience because we're trusting him. And we look forward expectingly to him returning. That we're going to stand and see him face to face. And we'll be ushered in to the eternal state, into eternal glory, where the presence of sin will be gone. We'll be fully perfected, a glorified, resurrected body united with a glorified, perfected inner man to dwell with the Lord forever, to sing His praises and worship the King of Kings. Well, think about these things <laughs> as the men come and pass out the elements. This is, this is what it's all about. And regardless of what we hear later today, or what we hear tomorrow in the news or the media, we can have confidence that God's in control, that God's working it all out, that whoever is elected in the future, their, their heart and their mind is in God's hands. He can direct them. You know, we look at King Cyrus. He can use even a pagan to work good for a country or for the people. But also remember when... The nation of Israel had a, had a good and righteous king for 60 years, but the scripture turns around and says, but the heart of the people did not change. Hearts are never changed through legislation. It's only through the gospel. And that's what we proclaim, and that's what God's called us as ambassadors, proclaim the gospel. But we all desire to see justice and righteousness in our world. Well, that day's coming. I just believe it's going to be when the government is upon his shoulders. And righteousness will rule and reign from Zion, if you will. So, well, ponder these things as the men come and pass out the elements. <laughs>